Welcome, 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 hello, welcome everybody to the Cone of Shame Veterinary Podcast. Guys, I'm Dr. Andy Work, and I am so pumped about this episode. Guys, it's our first ever Ray CE episode. That's right, Ray CE for listening to this podcast on your drive to work. How amazing is that? This is how it works. We got Ray CE approval for an article that was written by uh, the amazing, amazing, amazing and amazing surgeon, Dr. David Dykus on hip dysplasia. It is on the Dr. Andy Rourke website with a quiz at the bottom for Ray CE credit. I have interviewed Dr. Dykus and uh, we talk about the article in depth. And uh, if you check out this podcast and head over to the article, you ought to be able to bust out that quiz real fast and grab your Ray CE. So we are all set to go. All you got to do is listen. Listen to this here podcast coming at you on hip dysplasia and then head over to drandyrourke.com slash hips, H-I-P-S, that's drandyrourke.com slash hips. I'll put the link, uh, direct link in the show notes and then uh, check out, uh, hit the article, skim through it, make sure you uh, get everything that's there and then bang out that quiz and you're going to get yourself some race CE today. Isn't that awesome? Please, 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 please let me know what you think because this is a, a lot of work for my team. Uh, let me just pause for a moment and shout out the amazing Jamie Holmes who is uh, my go-to right hand who made this happen. And um, and she, well, I couldn't do it without her. But if you guys love it, I'll do more of this. Like I, I will I will work with people and we will make this happen if this is helpful. If you guys are like, hey, you know, I don't really want to say anything, then I'm not going to know that you really like it. And it's a lot of work for us. And so I'm just going to keep doing <laughs> the regular thing. But, um, but I got your back. And so you just got to tell me uh, that, that you like it and you want it. And you can shoot me an email. Um, you can email podcast at drandywork.com and say, yes, I love it. The better way to do it that really means a lot to me is if you jump on uh, iTunes and just leave an honest review and say, love the race CE. Getting race CE for a podcast is amazing. And like, I'll, I'll go to the map for you guys. You know that. I just got to know that this is what you want because it, it uh, you know, it it's work and it costs us some money to do it. But I mean, I, I'm going to do it if you want it. I promise. All right, guys, let's get into this episode. This is your show. We're glad you're here. We want to help you in your veterinary career. Welcome to the Cone of Shame with Dr. Andy Rourke. Welcome back, Dr. David Dykus. Thanks for being here, man. Hey, thanks so much for having me back. I'm excited oh. to uh, chat with you today. Oh yeah, heck yeah. This is this is awesome. Thanks for uh thanks for being up for trying our first race CE uh podcast. That's super cool. So For sure. All right. For sure. I think this is the first ever race approved podcast, right? Well, yeah. Yeah. It's actually <laughs> uh, it's actually a race approved article with a okay. podcast. Okay, article That's with what it attached is. podcast. Got exactly. it. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> we're gonna uh, we're going to knock out the uh, we're gonna knock out a discussion of this awesome uh, subject matter, and there is the article and the race e test is going to be over uh, on the Dr. Andy website. I'll put it down in the show description. Awesome. That's the plan. So, all right, let's get into this. We're talking today about hip dysplasia, which is something I know that you're passionate about. And we were talking about non-surgical management and rehabilitation in hip dysplasia. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it is something I would imagine that you and most of your listeners probably see 
uh, you know, if not daily, at least weekly. Oh yeah. I mean, how many times do you have a pet owner in the exam room? And I mean, it's just becoming common documentation of decreased muscle mass in the hind end, reduced range of motion in the hips. You know, you just see it uh, along and along and along. I think a lot of us don't exactly know what to say about it other than, yep, we're moving in that direction. Oh yeah. Well, you know, like most things for me, early recognition is, is key to everything orthopedics because, you know, hip dysplasia is the most common orthopedic issue that we see. And, you know, we've looked, gosh, since the 1930s when it was originally described as far as what the heck causes hip dysplasia. And there's a number of things, but I think that the central underlying theme would be laxity in the hips when a dog is a puppy. You know, there's a number of things that cause laxity. And so the goal needs to be is can we identify these uh, puppies when they're really young that have hip laxity? So we can start that conversation with, with clients as far as the best approach to conservative management and some goal-directed things to try to maintain. Yeah, I think when most of us think about, about hip dysplasia, I think intuitively, I think a lot of us think about osteoarthritis in the hips. But what you're saying is la- joint laxity, uh, number one, osteoarthritis, number two, as far as, uh, as um, I don't know, causative agents. Yeah. Yeah. I I would say hip laxity, number one. And then the end result of hip laxity is going to be osteoarthritis because realistically what we think is happening is uh, when a dog walks. So when the leg is in the air, uh, the hip will subluxate. And then when the foot goes to strike the ground, there's a lot of co-contractions of of large muscle bellies. and, And that drives the femoral head back into the acetabulum. So that's what's called catastrophic reduction. And okay. uh, that combination of uh, subluxation and then reduction creates abnormal wear and tear on the cartilage. And so they will go on to develop arthritic changes. The challenge is, is to say, well, how much uh, in terms of arthritic changes will be there and how severely will the dog be affected? And so if we can recognize these dogs very early, and do some things. My hope is, is that the arthritic changes will be minimal, uh, but we can also set these dogs up. If they hit a point where they need surgical intervention down the road, uh, they're going to be the best candidate possible for it. Okay, cool. So, so let's, let's talk about that. We, we often end up with these dogs. Uh, there's usually an age component to this. Obviously we end up with older dogs. We're seeing decreased muscle mass. We're starting to see decreased muscle mass. We're starting to see some evidence or we have pet owners who come in who have breeds that have a breed predisposition for hip dysplasia, German shepherds, things like that. And they're, they're very attuned to what's going on with their pets. They're not, um, they're either not surgical candidates or we're just not at a point where surgery seems warranted yet. And that's when we go the medical management route. Would you agree with that? Oh, for sure. For sure. And, and I think the important thing to first understand is that uh, when we talk about conservative management, we're going to consider that to be more of a palliative uh, method of, of treatment rather than something definitive. So we're not, we're not curing anything. We're simply trying to minimize the clinical signs, improve quality of life. And so like most things orthopedic, uh, we want to kind of tackle this in a multimodal way. And, and so, you know, what we really try to do is, is first reduce clinical signs of pain. Um, so if we've got the young puppy with lax hips, that dog may not be terribly painful. So we might say, okay, well, we don't necessarily need to get pain under control just yet, but 
if we've got an older dog that we're getting that uh, evidence of loss of muscle mass and they're starting to show some clinical signs, those dogs are likely painful. So we got to get pain under control. And uh, once, once we get pain under control, then we really want to try to improve hip range of motion and we want to try to improve hip strength. And once we've accomplished those goals, we want to maintain it with the whole mm -hmm. goal being to slow down and minimize progression of arthritic changes. Okay. So when we, uh, when we talk about pain control, right, let's, uh, let's get into that. Um, we've got pharmaceuticals. We've got, um, would you put weight control into the pain category? I would put weight control absolutely into the pain category. Um, I, I think weight control is going to be one of the absolute most critical aspects for both the young and the old dog that, that has hip issues. Uh, and it's going to have a direct correlation to pain relief. So yeah, I, I think we could absolutely throw uh, weight control into the pain category. Sweet. And then, um, and then I don't want to unpack too big a, a can of worms here. Uh, do you put nutrition, uh, are there nutritional supplements that you put into the pain control category? Yeah, I think we can put in various supplements into the pain control category. However, I think what we need to do is, is really kind of break up uh, at what stage of, of hip dysplasia this particular dog might be at and, and what is the degree of pain level um, okay. as to how we want to tackle that. And okay, so, so I think... I'm jumping. I'm jumping ahead. Then, yeah, yeah. Let's so let's go. Let's go ahead and talk about that. Let's talk about about splitting this up into categories and starting to think about it therapeutically. Okay, I, I think let's start with the easy one. Let's start with the young dog that's got hip laxity. Okay, and so the dog doesn't really have significant pain at the moment. So I don't think we necessarily need to load them up on an anti-inflammatory. Sure. Um, but I, I think when we look at the supplement category of things. It's not a bad idea to discuss a, a glucosamine chondroitin sulfate supplement. It's uh, not a bad idea to discuss the concept of omega-3 fatty acids. And then also some of the disease-modifying OA agents. So in that particular category, uh, we have Adequan. And um, the original studies of Adequan were done in eight-week-old puppies with hip laxity. And mm -hmm. That's where we actually saw a lot of relief was after those first eight injections. And so for me, uh, an avenue of pain relief comes from uh, starting Adequan as early as possible. Okay. Uh, the, the challenge is, is as a, right now, we don't know what happens after those eight injections because then it goes off label. <laughs> gotcha. so, so somebody's got to do the study to tell us how exactly is the best way to use it long term. But... If we can recognize hip laxity through palpation and checking for an ortolani and maybe even doing a pin hip evaluation where you're looking at how much hip laxity there is. And if we recognize that, then uh, we can have the conversation with the owners about starting glucosamine chondroitin sulfate adequan as well as an omega-3 fatty acid. And I think the omega-3 fatty acid and the joint supplement, they're going to need to be on for life. Um, mm -hmm. But then the other aspect is on weight control, because if they've got a puppy that's developing, what we don't want to do is, is try to supplement the dog to get them as big as we can as quickly as possible. Because 
actually trying to get dogs as big as we can, as quickly as we can. Um, actually, these dogs that have a genetic predisposition for hip dysplasia will have a higher incidence of, of hip dysplasia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we want to let them get to the size that they're going to get. And simply being overweight doesn't cause a dog to have dis- hip dysplasia. Mm-hmm. But if a dog has the genetic susceptibility for hip dysplasia and we let them get overweight, that is going to be a really big uh, key thing that is going to lead to the clinical signs of, of hip dysplasia. And you know, there were a couple of studies that looked at, at Labradors for their life. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they, they found that the Labradors they la- allowed to eat ad lib, they were heavier. They developed radiographic signs of hip arthritis on average six years earlier than the group that was restricted fed. And they required pharmaceutical management on average three years earlier. So, you know, weight control is, is simply a massive avenue to try to help minimize discomfort on the hips in these dogs as they develop. Okay. At, at what age should I be getting serious, David, about really looking in uh, – to hip dysplasia and thinking about hip dysplasia, you know, we, we've got wiggly puppies, you know, and, and some of them don't seem to want to extend their hips. You know, they, I had, had a, a husky, uh, probably a husky pit bull mix. It came in as a husky mix, uh, just yesterday. And it was doing a, the husky vocalizations and everything and kind of fighting me during the exam. And right. the, the voice in my head was like, I think this is just a husky dog being a husky dog. But I, it's not lost on me that he doesn't seem to want me to extend his hips. Uh, I mean, like, are are those cases that you get serious about, or or do you say let's wait and see a little bit? I, I know we're talking about well under two years of age when we're doing uh, like OFA certifications and things, but help me understand that time frame. I would honestly recommend when you give their rab- their first rabies vaccine that that you know twelve to fourteen weeks of age start thinking about the palpation and seeing if you can get an Ortolani. Now, puppies are tough because they squirm, they make all sorts of noises, and uh, it can also be tough to get an Ortolani in a puppy. And so if you have, say, some of the breeds that are at risk, you know, German Shepherds, uh, Rottweilers, some of these other dogs that we see a high prevalence of hip dysplasia in, it wouldn't be a bad idea at all to consider doing what's called a pin hip evaluation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's one of these things that realistically you can do the online training and it's a service you can offer to clients that will give you a little bit of a niche into your practice. And some individuals would say, well, gosh, you only need to do a pin hip evaluation if you're planning on breeding the dog or if you're you know, planning on to use the dog for you know agility or something of that nature. But I would fully disagree because with a pin hip evaluation, if you have any concern at all, you know, you, you've got the squirming puppy that you're like, I'm still feeling like this dog doesn't like me to extend its hips, or I think there's a little bit of clicking there. The dog has what we call a hip sway. You know, they look like a model walking down the runway because they're kind of swaying their hips as they walk. Um, getting a pin hip would be a great idea because if there's laxity there, if the, if the distraction index is high, that sets up the avenue for client communication to say, okay, there's laxity here. You know, here are the avenues we need to start to accomplish our goals of maintaining hip extension, maintaining hip strength, and trying to slow down and minimize progression of arthritic changes. And we can start that so early in the process rather than waiting until they actually already have radiographic evidence of arthritic changes. 
Okay. When I was getting uh, trained in vet school, about half the orthopedists kind of seemed sort of wishy-washy on pin hip. And they were like, ah, oh, you know, it's kind of subjective. I don't know. And you have to be trained on it well. What What is your what is your thinking um, there? I mean, obviously, you seem to be a fan of pin hip. Is this something that, that plays a role in general practice that you feel like is reliable enough that, that people should pay uh, attention to in day-to-day practice? I think so. I, I think... Nowadays, the ability to get pin hip certified is quite easy mm-hmm. and it, you know, you don't have to have specialist training to do it. And, um, there was actually a recent study that came out that, uh, showed, you know, the, the distraction index can change a little bit from the age of four months up to a year. And so ultimately I think with any test, the question being is, okay, if you offer it and you do it, what are you going to do about the results? Mm-hmm. And so uh, for me, if you do it and you have a very young dog and you get a high distraction index, you can have the discussion with the owners about the best way forward as far as management goes and things they can be doing at home to try to accomplish our goals. And then I might even consider when they get closer to a year, repent hipping them to see, okay, is it is it back to normal now? And And therefore we can not ease up on the weight control, but maybe we don't have to be doing these things on a daily basis, or is it still um, at a point where the distraction index is is abnormal? Mm -hmm. And so that will, in daily practice, allow you to, you know, rather than just re-prescribing the carprofen and not getting them in, that allows you to get them into their your hospital and you can provide a service to them that can give you objective information when you've got that actual number in front of you and it'll correlate for that particular breed to the probability of them developing arthritic changes by the age of three. So I think there's some useful information to be gained from it. Okay, very cool. Well, um, can you let's jump back just for a moment to Ortolani uh, and Ortolani signs? Can, do you have tips, tricks, um, words of advice on how to on how to do that well? Yeah, I think you can learn to do it in a number of of ways. If, for example, you've got a really chill puppy that is letting you get radiographs and you can put them on their back and the, and the puppy's not gonna, you know, squirm or anything like that. You can, you can easily put them on their back, put just a little bit of force down on the knees and then AB duck. So move the thighs away to see if you get a positive there. Um, if you've got a puppy that doesn't mind laying on their side, you can try it on their side. But for me, uh, I find most dogs like to be standing. They don't like to be forced onto their back or onto their side. And so I'll actually, uh, you know, leave them standing. I'll pick up one leg. I'll put my, uh, uh, one hand kind of along their dorsum and I'll put mm-hmm. my other hand on the stifle. And when I pick the leg up, I'll just sort of push up on the stifle and then I'll pull away or I'll abduct, uh, the limb to see if I get a positive Ortolani when they're, when they're standing. And, and I find that a lot of the dogs, uh, tend to tolerate the standing aspect a little bit better than trying to force them on their side when they immediately tense up with everything. Yeah. But, you know, if you don't get an Ortolani, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Uh, I think you got to go with your gut. If you if you really feel like on exam these hips just don't feel like they should, or that the dog's showing some signs that might be consistent with some hip discomfort, then sedating them and uh, mm-hmm. and doing a pin hip that way is going to be the the way to go. Okay, yeah, that that totally makes sense. All right, so uh, so we've talked about. Uh, Pain management, we're talking about early identification, we're talking about weight management. What else do we need to be thinking about with conservative management? I guess we started talking about the um, 
the different types of cases that we see. And we started with the young yeah. dogs. Yeah. Well, and you know, with, uh, with the older dogs, cause we can get into some of the things owners can be doing at home with the, their dogs in, in a moment. But when it comes to weight control in the older dog, you know, 60% of the pets right now are overweight in the United mm-hmm. States. So getting weight off of them, I think can have a big impact. And, you know, for me, I like to make things achievable. You know, if we look at an overweight dog and we tell the owner, whew, you got to get 30 pounds off your dog. They're thinking there's no way in the world I can do that. That's, that's a lot of weight. So I like to make it, uh, seem achievable. So I start with 10%, uh, body weight loss. And, um, that number was somewhat drawn out of the air around me. Um, mm-hmm. but, and I say that because realistically in people with knee arthritis, they found if you could lose 10% of body weight, that improved your comfort. And so I've sort of extracted the same theory to dogs. If we can start with 10% of body weight loss, and then rather than look at the weight on the scale, let's look at the dog's body condition. And once we've achieved that 10%, let's look at the dog and see, are we at the appropriate body condition? If not, do we need to lose another 5% or 10%? And I don't like to make it a big crash course diet. I like to Mm kind of extend it out to where we're shooting for about one to 2% per week. And so again, it allows you to not lose them to follow up, but to get them in. And the, the way to really start that weight loss process is to first consider diet. Um, and I'll start by feeding them about 60% of the calories they need to maintain their current weight. So we're cutting them roughly 30 to 40% of what they're currently eating. Okay. And you know, diet alone ha- is helpful, but you got to combine diet with daily exercise. And daily exercise is getting them out and taking them walking. And, uh, you know, when I tell owners, Oh, your dog needs daily exercise. They, they think this is great. I just have to open the back door and they can Mm -hmm. run around and life is good. And, you know, I have to try to explain to them that's not really exercise. Exercise is getting the the heart rate up. And so I'll devise a, a home walking plan for them, depending on the dog's fitness level. You know, if the dog can, you know, easily go on a, on a walk twice a day on level flat ground for 20 minutes, then I consider that sort of the minimum. And, you know, every dog's a little different. Some dogs, you know, the 13 year old dog with poly joint arthritic changes may not make it to that point, but the yeah. three year old Labrador should. And so, you know, once they get to that point, then I'm going to start devising things for the owners to do daily walking that are going to encourage hip extension because dogs with hip dysplasia and hip arthritis they lose hip extension, not flexion. And so we want to do things to maintain hip extension. And so, you know, some people think, well, gosh, if walking is good, that means running must be great. But in reality, in a dog, trotting doesn't increase their hip extension any more than walking. So walking is a great exercise. If we want to start increasing their hip extension, walking a dog upstairs will increase their hip extension by about 10 degrees. And so as long as they're comfortable, um, we can start including stair walking, um, if they're not quite ready for stair walking, we can walk them up an incline. That's not really going to increase hip extension, but it might start helping move the process to getting to stair walking. Um, if they're dogs that uh, we need to work on some kind of core muscle strength and hind limb muscle strength, we can move to uneven terrain such as sand or the water's edge or trails or, or that sort of thing. But the key to establishing a walking program or a home exercise program is they have to be pain-free. You know, we can't expect that dog that's got hip arthritis to just start having an exercise plan when they're painful. And Mm -hmm. so 
in the mature dogs, if we're approaching the dog with arthritis and let's say they're coming to see you because the dog's you know, not wanting to jump up in the car or having trouble getting on the sofa or going up the stairs or they're starting to slow down, they're coming to see you for a reason. And, and that dog's probably painful. And so, right. you know, that's not the case where we want to just give them omega-3 fatty acids and a joint supplement and start them on adequate and send them out the door. That's where we need to really reach for the pharmaceuticals. And uh, the best class there, and they get such a bad name, but the best class there is going to be the anti-inflammatory, mm-hmm. you know, getting them on and in said. And the goal being is if they're in a painful time period, how do we get them out of it? And, and sometimes it's as simple as 10 to 14 days of an anti-inflammatory and then we get them off of it. Um, what I don't like to see is that we put them on an anti-inflammatory and we forget about them and we just kind of keep re-prescribing it so that the mm-hmm. three-year-old lab is on the anti-inflammatory for two or three years. Um, other drugs that we can consider, uh, amantadine is another really good drug that we can use for OA pain. Um, it needs to typically be given in concert with an anti-inflammatory to be the most effective. Uh, it does have a study showing improvement in dogs with uh, arthritic pain. Um, gabapentin is another one that I think a lot of people love to prescribe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I prescribe gabapentin as well, but we need to be careful that we don't have any actual scientific evidence that gabapentin helps with joint pain. So we just need to you know, keep in mind that I think for years they told us, well, tramadol is not effective. So I bet if we look, we see the usage of tramadol going down, but about the same time we see the usage of gabapentin yeah. going up because <laughs> it was yeah. kind of like, what did we have to use? Um, but amantadine and, and, and NSAID. I don't use a lot of opioids uh, for arthritic pain management. If, if I thought a dog needed it, I'm, I might consider codeine. I don't use tramadol, but even codeine, we could argue about the effectiveness there. Right. And so if they're, if they're actually really painful, I'm going to say, well, let's, let's back off the activity a little bit. So you know, let's let the joints rest. Let's, let's avoid things that are going to cause joint pain. The unfortunate thing is, is those things are what dogs love to do. We need to avoid ball play. We need to avoid chasing. We need to avoid running and jumping. Mm-hmm. And let's, let's, let's rest for about 10 to 14 days. Let's get pain under control. And then if we're pain is under control, then we're going to start kind of a controlled exercise program. Uh, if they're able to, um, if some of these dogs are so painful or they're so out of shape or they're, or they're just so clinically affected we might not even be able to start a home exercise plan. We might have to start a formal rehabilitation plan to try to make up a lot of lost uh, time and then enroll them into a home exercise plan. Okay. Let's talk about uh, rehabilitation a little bit. So this is us talking to, um, let's out, let's talk about outpatient rehabilitation. These are things that we would sort of uh, train pet owners to do. What, I mean, what tools are in our toolbox? Yeah. So I, I love that when, when you bring up the outpatient part, because rehab, when we always say rehab, we always think, oh my gosh, they have to come into the hospital. And mm-hmm. I look at it as two concepts. There's the home driven portion and the in clinic driven portion. The home driven portion is great for those dogs that are not just significantly painful. And so our goal needs to be to do the things to accomplish our goals of improving hip extension and improving muscle mass and endurance and strength and all those great things. So I like to kind of create a sort of a daily home exercise plan for them. And so for me, that means we let the dog get up. They walk around five, 10 minutes to kind of get loosened up. Uh, We go on our walk. 
So that could be anywhere from 20 to 30, 40 minutes. Um, if they're comfortable and they've been walking, we might have them doing some stair walking. We might have them doing some uneven terrain. Um, when they get back from their walk, we're going to start to do some various exercises. So uh, sit to stand exercises where we have the dog sit nice and square, and then we have them stand up, and then we have them sit nice and square. Those are helpful to improve total range of motion of both the knee and the, and the hip. And so I'll have them do that. Uh, typically 20 or, you know, we'll start with about 10 reps, um, of nice square sits. Uh, I like doing, um, dancing exercises with them. So dancing exercises are really going to improve hip extension. And that's basically where you pick them up on their front legs and lift them up. And then you can either go one of two directions. You can walk backwards. So the dog's walking towards you, or you can walk forwards and the dog's walking backwards. And so in the beginning stages, I like to pick them up and I walk backwards. So the dog's walking towards me and we'll go three, four, five steps down and we'll repeat that process probably eight to 10 reps. Mm -hmm. Once a dog is massively comfortable in their hips and their hip extension is great, then I will start walking towards the dog. So I'll make the dog walk backwards because walking a dog towards you will improve hip extension. Walking a dog backwards is kind of the most advanced form of getting hip extension in a dog. And so some of these dogs may not even be comfortable enough for me to fully pick them up. So it might be that we get them up on a stool or a chair and we slide the chairs so they have to, to move their toes a little bit um, or move their feet a little bit until we can get slowly more comfortable on, on that hip extension. Um, other things we can do for the uh, dogs at home is, is we can make shift our own kind of cavalettis, which are walking over the bars. Um, you can have the owners uh, walk the dog on a sidewalk and then off the sidewalk and back on. That would be one form. We could uh, set things up in the house that they have to walk over. We can you know, take things in the garage and we can kind of make a mess and they have to navigate over those obstacles. That's sort of an at-home cavaletti type aspect of things. Um, what am I then, aiming for with that? Like, like, um, is there, so I don't want to make something that's, I mean, how, how do I know a difficulty level that's, that's, that's beneficial? I'm, I mean, you know what I mean? I, I don't want to, I don't want to make this too difficult. I don't want to make it too, right. too easy. Like what, what am I looking for when I set up the Cavaletti sort of course? Well, you know, in, in the in-clinic scenario, we can vary the height and, and joint range of motion is going to improve as we vary the height. At home, we don't need to try to really worry about the height too much. We can simply um, have them walking over various objects, whether that's, you know, you've got like your shovel, your rake and stuff laying in the floor that they have to walk over. Yeah. Because that is, is going to do a number of things. Number one, that's going to work on not only, uh, you know, having to pick their legs up and walk over those, but it's also going to work on their proprioception. Right. Because when we mentioned proprioception, we always think, oh, neuro, neuro cases where we flip the paw over and they don't flip it back over. But, you know, proprioception is really sort of the awareness in space and time of where your limbs are. And uh, people with arthritic changes, they have proprioception deficits because there's this constant contraction of the periarticular tissues and this reflex inhibition. So we assume the same for dogs. So uh, doing things like three-legged standing and weight shifting exercises and, and, you know, making them stand on say couch cushions for balance and that sort of thing, all those 
not only work on core strength, but they also help with improving proprioception, which is what these dogs need as well. I'll tell my wife, our house is not a dump. It is a, uh, proprioception, uh, <laughs> protective measure for our, exactly. uh, for our goofy dog. Exactly. You got it. <laughs> very, very <laughs> and then, nice. Uh, and then the other thing that, um, I'll have the owners do. So, you know, we've worked on, we've done our, our exercise, our walk, we've done our sit to stands. We've done our, uh, you know, walking around on objects. We've done our, uh, dancing exercises from there. I, I don't want them just to go let the dog lie down. I think at that point, uh, they can do the cool down process and the cool down process is going to be, uh, both stretching and range of motion. So passive things. So what they're doing is sort of bicycling the leg through range of motion, but then they're going to get to the kind of that end point of hip extension and they're going to hold that just a little bit, mm -hmm. just like us with stretching. Um, because as I said, dogs lose hip, lose hip extension if they've got hip dysplasia. What we don't know is if we take a dog, let's say they've got 140 degrees of hip extension and for reference, about 160 is normal about 150 to 160 is acceptable. Mm -hmm. So let's say they've got 140 degrees. They've got a loss of hip extension. If I stretch that dog every day, uh, am I going to be able to improve hip extension? And we did a little kind of mini pilot study and found that, yeah, absolutely. If for 12 weeks you stretch a dog daily, you can improve hip extension by several degrees. The challenge though, is if you fall off the bandwagon and you stop doing that, uh, does that, do you lose everything you've gained? And so, mm -hmm. you know, I tell owners, if, if we've got a young dog or an older dog, you know, it's going to take a little bit of investment of time on your part. The good news is, is in most situations, time's not costing you money. So you have to invest a little bit in taking your dog for a walk, doing your sit to stand exercises, doing your dancing exercises, and then at the end, doing your stretching range of motion exercises and just make that part of the daily uh, living. And that's part of kind of the cool down process. And the whole concept, depending on how long you're walking, shouldn't take more than about 30 to 50 minutes of your time. Mm -hmm. um, and, and trying to do these things every single day versus doing them just on the weekends or, you know, two days a week, that sort of thing. And, and I think once we have a dog that's in a comfortable state and we start doing these things, we can uh, make a lot of headway in improving their hip extension, improving their muscle strength, and then over time, potentially not only maintaining it, making it even better than what it would have been versus these dogs that come in where they've got hip arthritis and, and they've been taking an anti-inflammatory for years, but nobody's ever really put hands on them and worked with them. They're like tight rubber bands and it yeah. takes you know months of in-clinic physical therapy to get these dogs where we can say, okay, now you can go to your outpatient physical therapy and, and do your home exercise plan. Gotcha. Um, how often are you recommending in clinic, uh, physical therapy for dogs with, uh, hip dysplasia? Yeah. So if, if the dog is painful, um, we can consider that dog's probably in what's called a, an OA flare up. So mm -hmm. there's this, you know, this pain sensation associated with it and dogs could be in flare ups for weeks, days, months, or even years. And so the goal is to get them out of that flare up. And, and many times that's the pharmaceutical management. But for me, I also will recommend a formal rehab program because a lot of these dogs have such tension and tightness compensatory issues that getting trained hands on them will help relieve a lot of those and certainly improve comfort that way. And so sometimes that's once weekly 
for four to six weeks. Sometimes in some cases it can be twice weekly for four to six weeks. But the general aspect is usually once weekly physical therapy in clinic. Um, but then the ideal physical rehabilitation therapist is going to, at the very beginning, examine the dog, de- determine what are our end goals and how are we going to get there. So that way, as they're advancing in the clinic rehab program, they're getting home exercise pl- uh, program that sort of parallels that, that advances over time. So it's it's sort of like people. You know, you go to physical therapy and you do things with the physical therapist and then they say, okay, here's what I want you doing at home. Uh, and that's so that way you don't lose everything you've, you've gained before your next visit. And, and we treat dogs the exact same way. Perfect. All right. The, the point I want to leave on uh, is uh, a point that you've made before that I just I really like. There's um, I like the saying, you know, don't make a uh, permanent decision based on a temporary emotion. You uh, yes. you have a saying about uh, an irreversible decision on uh, temporary flare-ups. Can you talk about that real quick? Yes. So when we when we talk about uh, arthritis in general, we assume it follows the same flow as, as in people where you have these periods of what I call calmness. You know, you know you've got arthritic changes, but it doesn't really hurt at the moment. And then you've got flare-ups where you've got arthritic changes and yeah, it hurts. The problem is, is typically when we see dogs come into the clinic from an arthritic standpoint, they're usually in a flare-up. And so dogs in flare-ups, we should never make irreversible decisions such as surgery or euthanasia for a dog that's in a flare-up. You know, our goal needs to be to do everything possible to get that flare-up under control first. So, you know, for the mature dog, if, if a dog comes in and, and they see you, for example, and you say, yep, there's hip pain there, you take x-rays and you're like, wow, these hips look horrible. And you say, you need to go see Dr. Dykus for hip replacement. And, you know, you come in and, and I look and I say, okay, you know, you're, you're four years old. You've never really shown hip issues before and it's hurting now. Something's changed. Um, and we haven't really tried to address this conservatively first. I'm probably going to do that before I jump straight into a hip replacement or an FHO. I'm going to do everything I can to try to get the dog back to where they were before they started having issues. And in more times than not, that's achievable. The question is, is how long can we achieve it for? Some dogs, it's for a long time. Some dogs, we go right back into that painful episode. And if we do, then I say, okay, you know what? We tried conservative management and perhaps what's going on with you is such that we do need to consider surgical intervention and, and I would be fine doing surgery then. But I, I, I don't like jumping into an FHO or a total hip replacement based on simply just looking at a radiograph and, and a dog's got hip arthritis. Um, but I also don't want to get trapped into the circle of the dog was painful. We did things, they were not painful. And then a month later they're painful. We did some things they are not painful. And then a month later. So, so I'll give them that, that first go around, but yeah, I don't think we need to make those decisions based on a dog and a flare up. You know, we need to see if we can do all the right things to get them out of a flare up first before we make those permanent decisions. Yeah, I think that's great. I just think that's, I think that's a great point. I think it's a great point to end on David. Thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate you walking through this with us. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was delighted that you asked me to come and chat with you, and, and I hope that uh, others can gain some information to take away and go back to work and improve the quality of life in some of these dogs. Cool. Thanks, buddy. Yeah, thank you. 
And that's our episode. Guys, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you got a lot out of it. I love Dr. David Dykus. I think he's amazing. Uh, the article is over at drandywork.com slash hips, H-I-P-S. And there's a CE quiz there as well. Guys, this is an experiment. It's a pilot. I hope it goes. Um, the the uh, podcast uh, and with the article is uh, something that Race was very generous to approve as a package. And so that is awesome. But we're all learning and trying this together. I just, um, man, let me know what you think and share it with your friends too. Uh, that's another way that I'll kind of know that this is working is if a bunch of people jump in and uh, and listen to the episode and take the quiz and I go, man, people are using this. That's awesome. That's the positive reinforcement that I need to keep going. So anyway, guys, take care. Be well. Talk to you later.